Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Sachin Adam Show. So um, this week we're trying to do something a little bit different. Um, half of it is because we didn't get a guest for this Friday night, but half of it because we want to try to have some fun. So this episode is just going to be called like Beers with Sachin and Adam. And we're actually here at my house having a few beers um, and we're going to have some discussions. Um, but I think we'd like to start off and talk about what's been going on with the views in the podcast so far. So... We've actually hit, we're just shy of 13,000 listens on all platforms. And we're looking at the YouTube analytics right now. And it's like 803 hours of like listening time. And we calculated that. And that goes to over like a month of like people listening 24 hours. And we're like, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it's pretty weird thinking that many people have tuned in for that many hours into this. Mm. Um, I don't know what weird people do that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe it's just because we've released a lot of episodes. And like, <laughs> it, could be that. it could be that. But uh, yeah, we, we had um, a couple episodes fall through this week, but we thought we'd do one um, anyway. But in the next couple of weeks, we're hopefully going to get back to the Sydney Uni campus and start doing in-person things because mm. I think we very much miss that. Like the, our sort of one of our goals with this or like especially my main goal is to meet new people and learn things from them. And when you can't meet someone in person, obviously that's massively limited. Yeah. I think the positive has been that we've been able to reach out and talk to people like Liz Broderick, talk to people in America about the Black Lives Matter protest, which we just wouldn't have been able to do in person, which has been a positive. But like, as Adam said, we kind of really miss that kind of authentic experience. I think you can connect Mm. with someone so much better, um, when in person, me yeah. and Adam have our subtle eye contacts and we laugh if our guest says something funny or something <laughs> along those lines. Yeah. It's uh, a lot more fun in person, but yeah, there's perks over Zoom as well. Yeah, so um, I think what would be cool is that we will just ask each other a few questions and just see where we go from that. I think it's not really not like everyone kind of thinks we're very similar people or used to after exchange, but I think mm. we're like, I think people that know us well actually know us. We have we have very like diverging opinions, diverging views. We actually mm. don't agree on everything. Mm. Um, and I yeah, think maybe we should get controversial this episode. Let's <laughs> yeah. go into politics. Yeah, Let's yeah. go into our core beliefs. Of- yeah, cool. And, yeah. and I think those beliefs have changed a lot over time, which actually may be something um, interesting. But we actually haven't prepped this at all and we haven't told each other what questions we're going to ask. So this may get interesting. So I think I'll start off um, yeah, go asking it. Adam. So... So Adam, like you've been learning Mandarin lately. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And I also want to kind oh, of, no. I kind of want to be putting me on the spot about a language I've been learning for two weeks. <laughs> no, 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 not the actual Mandarin. I want to kind of talk more broadly about what we're seeing um, with China right now. These these big geopolitical tensions. Um, I know this is something you've been interested in and we've been talking about for some time. And Ray Dalio has actually come out and he's writing a book about this and it's called Changing it's World Order. Book. It's a great book. Yeah, and he basically does this study about how kind of past empires have been built and it kind of shows that China is showing a lot of signs of being kind of like the world dominator across a lot of areas. Mm. Um, and this obviously has a lot of security concerns for Australia and whatnot, but I just wanted to hear like your thoughts generally on what's mm. going on. Well, I, I take an interest in this because I think everybody should. I think it's important and especially in our lifetimes. Um, I'm not an expert on this. I haven't written papers on this. I don't study government or international relations, but I read the news and I sort of dig into like the past and the present and what's going on. And I think the world, um, and yeah, partly Australia is in a precarious position regarding China. I think we can see on a lot of different fronts, China being aggressive. um, And I think they often do it in quite a subtle way. They'll be aggressive and sort of passive aggressive with small nations. It can be in terms of financing um, certain projects. It might just be with sort of entities which they, which are semi-autonomous, sort of like Hong Kong um, and Taiwan, which a lot of countries think are, is an autonomous country, but China obviously doesn't think. But yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of aggression um, in different ways. And I think in our lifetime, it's just going to get a lot more aggressive and they're going to play a much bigger part in the role of the world and Australia. And I think that um, everybody should take an active interest in this because mm. I think it's obviously better if this can work together and there can be sort of mutually beneficial results when countries trade um, and when we share ideas and when we share people to some extent. Mm. But I think if you look to the past, if you look at the current trajectory, it looks like there is going to be some sort of conflict in the future. And I think, yeah, I think a lot of people have come in aware to it yeah yeah no it's a very scary thought um i just want to i think it's pretty obvious to a lot of our viewers but like because australia is so kind of geographically close to china 
yet we've kind of aligned with the US in that kind of calling out on China on some of those things. We have that commission into the origin of the coronavirus. Um, I think two, three weeks ago, there was something about um, aggressions in the South China Sea that Australia spoke out about. And yeah. they re- China retaliated with some kind of proposing additional um, export bans. There's been even talk about um, that. I think they, they released something to Australian, to Chinese international students coming to Australia that Australia is a racist country and not a good place to go yeah. study, which is, which is crazy. Quite right? ironic if you ask me. Yeah. I think there's a lot of beliefs in China about the sort of superiority of their people as well. Mm. And like, I, I'm sure there are aspects of racism in Australia regarding Chinese people, but the sort of the way they said it, and they haven't ever said it before, was obviously an act of passive aggression towards China and just toward, sorry, towards Australia and our policies. But I think Australia's doing the right thing at the moment. I can't criticise our leaders. I think on every front, just this year, we started really calling out regarding coronavirus, um, regarding Hong Kong, regarding South China Sea. I'm not sure what's been said about the ways, but I know a lot of, um, especially liberal senators have been talking about it, which mm. is a good thing. Mm, interesting. So what, what? how do you see this kind of progressing forward? Like, obviously, we're very reliant on the on China for our economy on so many fronts. Mm. Do you think it's kind of we need to have like a more of a structural shift in our economy to more kind of European nations, for example, so we're not as reliant on China to kind of um, cushion ourselves for like future conflict? 100%. I think we've become very reliant on China and I think like the education sector is like a really good indication of that, how many universities are losing funding. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. Like they just saw it as an opportunity. But I think going into the future, if we have a lot of our exports going to China, they decide one day to cut off certain things Mm. or to stop sending us certain products, we need plan Bs. Um, So, yeah, I think it should be movement more towards the Americas, um, towards Europe, towards India even. Mm. Um, India does, like I've heard that, because um, with young change agents doing some work in India, and it, it came to our like understanding that there's a lot of universities, Australian universities, they have full offices in India because they really see it's the future of them getting students. I think Macquarie yeah. University is very heavily invested in India, so they literally have 30 people employed by the uni that live there, yeah. um, trying to kind of um, spread their their operations mm. and stuff. I think which will be interesting. I think we're just going to be seeing more and more Indian students coming into Australia yeah. in the future. Um, so maybe India is almost going to be the future. Um, China for Australia. So yeah. obviously they're a less developed country than China. Mm. We've got a population that is, um, I'm not sure right now if it's already exceeded, but it's growing at a lot faster rate than China. Yeah. Um, and we're going to see them as a really critical defense against China. They're mm. in a very uh, important geographic position. And I think without them, there would be a lot um, more easier access for China to the rest of the world. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like I'm talking to, to like a foreign correspondent expert. Um, <laughs> Like I, I think I think something that we we've spoken about personally, which I'd also like to talk about, is when Adam actually initially said all these things to me. I was kind of I was receptive to it to a certain degree, but for me personally, just because I've had a lot of Asian Australian friends experience racism with this kind of um, when 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 um, kind of people have had aggressions to China, then translating that to racism to some of my friends. So I kind of had a very defensive outlook on it which was kind of a short-term reaction that all these Australian, um, Asian Australian friends, this is likely going to have negative implications on them in the future. Mm. And that's nothing that, that's nothing that like, it's not Australia's fault. It's not China's. Well, it kind of is, but like, it's just a reality that we may experience in the future. Yeah. I think it's really important at this stage to be able to hold in two thoughts, which might be seemingly contradictory. So you can support your friends that are from Asia and that are now Australian. Yeah. And then you can also call out um, particularly what the Chinese government is doing, what the mm. Chinese Communist Party is. And I think that's an important thing for us. And I think it's important for, especially for Asian people that come to live in Australia, to a lot of people, like say you sort of got to pick one of the two. I, like I don't agree with that in a sense. You can obviously have a cultural affection for your home. You've got family living over there. But if you if people do come to Australia, like especially in our future, I would want to believe that people would be aligning themselves to Australia. Um, and I think that's something that has to be said, particularly because a lot of members of China, mm. are, sorry, a, a lot of people from China are members mm. of the Communist Party. Yeah, I, I think I think we need to reframe even in this conversation we're having to talk about the CCP instead of China as a whole. Yeah. Like, yes, they govern China, but I think that can then have connotations to Chinese people, which can be dangerous. Like, I think we should, like, re- just say, like, CCP is doing this. CC- mm. And I think that 
Well, but- I mean, yeah, to a sense, it's like the CCP. But obviously, as China gets bigger and powerful and more powerful and shows their intentions, it's going to be like a lot of people going along with that as mm. well. But yeah, I, I agree. I think you should frame it particularly as the political party that has the whole sort of effect of the country. Yeah. They have total control. Yeah, because even like, even with coronavirus, I was telling you this before, but there's been a lot of people that I know personally that have been attacked in places like the CBD in very um, kind of well, well, mm. like very, what's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of in public places and just had horrible racist things said to them um, just for just for looking Chinese. Some of them aren't even Chinese. And it's like, if that's now, what's, what's it going to be like in the future? Yeah, people, Had, people have to consider that for sure. But I just, I don't think that should ever deter you from, well, particularly Australian politicians and leaders not taking a stand against China mm. because so like 100% sympathy with those people. Mm. The way I see it is that I see like China internally, like I've been there quite a few times um, and like some parts of the country are really, really amazing, but then a lot of their freedoms are really constricted. Yeah. Um, I've, I've known like certain people that like really – and my parents have known certain people that really bad things have mm. happened to them yeah, yeah, because yeah. of the government um, and just little political freedom and obviously discrimination against certain groups. Yeah. Um, and I think that in the future, if they try and expand and become more of an imperial power, like I just look at Australia and I'm just so grateful for what we have. Mm. I think I think it's like the best country in the world. Like, I mean, there's countries on par with that. I think there's fantastic European countries, mm. Scandinavian countries. I think we've just given an immense amount of opportunity to people there's a lot of peace, freedom, security. And that's coming from like a relatively privileged sort of perspective, but mm. I think we're a great country and I just think that's something that we want to maintain in perpetuity and never be complacent about. No, I definitely agree. I just don't want to see a repeat of like what happened to the Japanese in World War Two and those kinds of things. Yeah, because 100%. war can bring up things that like we've never experienced it, but I just can imagine yeah. a red book because it just can bring out sides of people, sides yeah. of like countries that you just wouldn't even imagine. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I haven't gone through war, but I think it puts people in a very primal mind state, mm. mind state of us versus them. Mm. People start to see things in a very simplified way. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I guess like reading Ray Dalio's book is is a great primer for this sort of stuff. Yeah. So he looks into every transition of great power and empire in the world. He looks at the sort of causes of that. So look how education, military, reserve currencies really um are like a sort of standard which show how countries transition and then he shows the effects and for most of those empires it's been like a lot of a lot of conflict yeah between the two and it changes it changes the world because it shows who's directing the world and in what way are they going to direct it and, and the thing is like china's so ahead on so many areas just because they have an authoritarian government in in some technology aspects i was talking to a close friend of ours the other day about um this kind of climate change emergency we have around the world and china's actually really ahead in nuclear just because they don't have to, you know, have this whole consensus of a population about it kind of thing. They can just go, okay, these are facts. Nuclear is good for our future. Mm. We know that it's not as dangerous as it was in times like Chernobyl and all those kind of things that people have biases about. And now they've invested heavily in nuclear. Yeah. And in Australia, it's banned, which is like crazy. And I don't know, you just finished that article about um, that Tian wrote about mm. nuclear energy mm. and stuff like that, which is interesting. And I, it, it almost seems like, that having an authoritarian government can propel you forward in so many aspects that capitalism Definitely. values. I think an authoritarian nation, that is efficiency. That's mm. people at the top directing a bunch of other people how to do something. And if you don't work fast enough, you get chucked into camps or you lose your job. Like, it depends where you are. Yeah. But I was watching videos the other day of um, the creation of the Three Gorges Dam in China, mm. which is one of the largest dams in the world. Um, and it produces an amount, immense amount of hydroelectric power and there's over 100 million people that live just up and down this dam because it's the Yangtze River. Um, and it just got created so efficiently. And I was just like watching videos of how people do it. And like you look at sort of Australian laborers on a site mm. um, and like it just looks like we, we, don't, breaks. <laughs> we, we don't have that, um, that sort of purpose in mind where yeah. I think people that are in China, especially in the construction sector, have just an immense amount of purpose of what they're doing. Mm. Um, and that gorge is actually quite interesting. I've been reading about it lately because certain people are worrying about the structural integrity of it and whether that's actually going to be able to stand and put, be put together for a long time because they're having these crazy floods. And apparently like 15% of the world's trade is associated with this dam and the Yangtze River and the trade routes that go through it. Wow. So it's, it's pretty crazy stuff there at the moment. <laughs> And yeah. it's been talked about a lot in the media, this dam. Interesting. 
Mm. Yeah, well, so we, we've <laughs> we've had a China expert on the podcast already. Um, looking forward to hearing that. And and I, if anyone listened to last week's episode, another kind of interesting element to this was Brendan Ma talked about how China is actually the biggest creditor in the world at That's the moment. That's a fascinating, fascinating and, topic. And um, kind of post-GFC, um, America and some of the Western nations stopped lending to developing countries as much because yeah. um, with risk comes premium. Um, and so they thought that the <laughs> finance, um, they thought that the countries wouldn't be able to afford these kind of extra mm. premiums. But China came in and, well, did 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 a good thing in some regards and yeah. kind of, yeah, I know. Well, like, let's be honest about like what China was doing in Brendan's context about the lending. Yeah. I mean, obviously you can look at it one side and you'd be like, this is sort of philanthropic. They're doing this risky lending to developing countries, but they were always geopolitical mm. but, sort of. But it's like if they weren't there and didn't have those imperialist geopolitical aims, those countries may have not got any financing. These schools, bridges and stuff may not have been built. I know what you mean, but I, I just can't see it in that optimistic lens as well. Mm. But I, th- I think this is a great opportunity for Western nations and multilateral organisations to really step in and do a lot more of that sort of development style mm. lending. So the World Bank and just like Western countries. Yeah. Um, well, the World to- Bank needs people to increase the amount of funding they give to them, yeah. right? Yeah. That was a big issue. But like, I, I think this comes to a broader issue and we see this kind of philosophical dilemma play out across so many things. It's like, if a company, like let's say a big corporate, is doing like a greenwashing initiative, they're donating to some charity, but they have an intention of just using it as a marketing campaign, is that good or would we mm. rather them not have done it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. And I guess there is that perspective where it is partly a failure of Western nations to not be picking up the slack, yeah. that sort of development financing. But yeah, I think that's going to be incredibly important because that's a way to easily win over smaller countries get alliances on side and some of those smaller countries will be in really um strategic locations mm. military it? and in a trade sense how's the lion's mane the lion's mane oh yeah <laughs> i don't know i don't feel it i try. i tried this like sort of new tropic thing called lion's mane it's like a what would you compare it to um it's a very kind of it's in the tim ferris joe rogan-esque kind of um like they, they made it very popular, but it, it's a it's a natural nootropic. I think it's actually it was popular in Chinese medicine, like ancient Chinese medicine. Yeah. Um, and it's this natural mushroom that kind of boosts immunity, brain function, cognition. Mm. I I sometimes have it on days when I'm studying heavily, and in the morning with a green tea, it really kind of lights you up. Mm. Like you feel it's like, like a herbal a, extract sort of stuff. Yeah, like completely legal. It's just like yeah, having yeah. a tea, but it's just like. I don't know, it makes yeah. you focus a bit better. Yeah, it gets it's you firing on all four cylinders. But I think at this time, mixed with beers, I don't know if it would have really done it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, interesting. Uh, do you have a question for me? Oh, a question for you. I think like most of the questions for you would be university-centered and because you're coming to the end of the degree, mm. I'd be interested to know. So on the one hand, what has been sort of the best thing you've learned during your four years at Sydney Uni? It can be anything. It can be academic. It can be from a person. It can be a skill. Um, and what is one regret? And you have to say one regret. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Adam, like, put that preface in because he'll know I'll say, I don't have any regrets. Yeah. Like- Which I think is bullshit. I <laughs> yeah. think, like, to some extent, people can always think about, I would have done something just a little bit better. Naive optimism. It's all part of the plan. <laughs> it's all part of fate. Um, yeah, so coming to the end of university, I think the highlights for me have been friendships. I know this is cliche, but I came into university in high school. I was in kind of this like, you know, jockey kind of group. Um, and I came into university um, and I was honestly quite, not insecure, but I was coming from a public school and I was coming into Sydney University and I thought I was just going to be at the bottom of the university. I thought everyone was going to be super smart, which they are. Um, but I kind of had this opportunity to like really thrive at university. And a big thing it taught me is that I always need to put, my, put myself into environments with kind of like really top people really like high like high achieving people because those are the environments I thrive in. And so I was actually so on the fence about coming to Sydney. I was enrolled in this entrepreneurship program at Macquarie. Um, I was like really, like really wanting to go there. Um, and I think that in hindsight, I don't know what that path would have been like, but I'm really glad I went to Sydney because now some of my best mates are here and I just realized that I thrive in these environments. Um, I think one of the best parts about uni was not dropping out. Um, 
I think in year one and year two, I went through this big self-development entrepreneurship phase where I read all these books and I was convinced that like I was going to be the new Zuckerberg and drop out of uni. I know. I look back on it now and I'm like, that was silly. And I think it's a good lesson that the trends of the future are never really the trends of the past. And because we had this era of internet dropouts, now actually the biggest entrepreneurs now are like usually PhDs in computer science. Mm. I I think just to add add that, Add to that, sorry. I don't think it's just a trend. I think it's also that the longer you're at university for and you try like sort of different careers and jobs, you realize that things are more difficult, especially if you're wanting to have great achievement and Mm. success in the business world. And a lot of people come out of high school with this naive optimism that we say, and it's like, I'm going to build this really big company. Like I I can do things a different way. And you realize like, no. Yeah. I I think that's a big thing. Yeah. I also think that in first and second year, I actually didn't enjoy uni as much as I do now because you're doing all of these subjects you have to do and stuff you're not interested in, like accounting, you know, those kind of things. And now we're at a stage later in uni where we can do things like development economics, things like we're really passionate about. I hated first year uni. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I I think you, you would have more to say about this for me, but yeah, um, environments, friendships are the biggest thing. And I talk about this a lot, but I generally think a lot of people I've met at Sydney Uni are going to be the future leaders of the world. People like Adam, Jack, Tiaram, we've had on the podcast before. And I'm kind of like really honored to know all these kinds of people that I'm not sure I would have met if I didn't go to uni or maybe if I'd gone to a different uni. Uh, other lessons, I think just like kind of putting your, like, I know this is very obvious again, but always like putting your hand up for opportunities um, things like exchange have just like really changed my life. And I think in uni, I've realized that I'm someone that is naturally always going to lean towards kind of working hard. And sometimes when I kind of step back and do things like exchange, like I almost wasn't going to go because I was like, it's going to take away from my goals, which is just like another thing as Adam said is bullshit. Like I wasn't even working on anything, you know? And um, I think those moments and those kind of memories are like something I treasure forever. And I really like, Kind of, I really like. I'm scared to leave uni. Those times in Sydney uni, law, law, and all those kind of things, I'm gonna miss. Um, in terms of things I regret, th- this is an interesting one because, like, my first reaction is to say, like, I don't regret anything. Um, I think that's just an opportunity. Sorry, an optimistic thing to say. I think everyone has. But like, I think they would have done differently. But I see it as all kind of part of. Like I'm where I want to be now and that was all part of the journey to get there. Yeah, I mean, like you can have that super spiritual look to it. Like everything came to this moment <laughs> and just made me who I am. But like, but I think in the end of the day, there's probably something you wish you could have done differently. Yeah. Um, I think that I kind of regret studying. Oh, I, I don't want to say like I think in first and second year uni, I wasn't like I was. How do I say this? I don't think I invested heavily in the right societies. So in first, second year uni, when me and Tian did that limitless tutoring thing, all that kind of stuff, I kind of pulled back from societies. And I kind of wish I did more with societies like 180 degree consulting. I did it my first term of uni. I really loved it, but it took so much time. And back then I was like, no, this is time away from self-development. This is time away from entrepreneurship. So I didn't invest more into that. And I think having that experience consulting for a range of like kind of not-for-profits would have been really beneficial and something that I do, I, I want to do in the future and I kind of really value. Mm. I kind of wish I went to more uni parties and stuff. Like I don't think I went to that many. I went to Subski, I went to the Business Ball and stuff like that. But I sometimes I didn't go on nights out and stuff around uni at the expense of studying and doing other things. Interesting. What, what did you think my uni regrets would have been? Um, yeah, I think it was going to be sort of similar like the sort of social aspect of like almost going too hard Mm. in the first year and then just not um doing more beneficial society stuff that sort of stuff um but yeah no i like i i genuinely do think you've like made the most out of your university so i just wanted to see what you'd say anyway yeah no I, i think another thing is in like the first in first year i don't think i was as myself as i am now i think everyone goes to that phase where like Tutes are very intimidating. You meet all these friends. Like for me, I was meeting a lot of people from private schools, which I wasn't just very used to. And now I think I'm a lot more settled into who I am than, oh, actually, so another regret is I kind of regret um, spending too much time confronting people with opposite opinions of me. And I know know that sounds very like close-minded, but I've spent a lot of university time debating people that are more conservative than me and all those kinds of things. 
Um, not not like recently. In, fir- in first year, second okay. year. Um, oh, people I probably in, shouldn't say that. Yeah, like, yeah. People in like the Cabin Three group and stuff like that. They used to all call me a socialist and stuff. Like even times about the gay marriage thing, there was actually people in that in that initial uni group I had that didn't believe in like they didn't believe in that kind of stuff. So those well, kind of debates. I think- that's one of the best things about university. Like you come across so many divergent opinions but I, I, and that makes your own beliefs more robust. Well, I mean, firstly, it opens you up to new beliefs. And secondly, mm. it makes your opinions more robust if you decide to continue with them. Yeah, I just think that I like I do agree, but yeah. I think there's diminishing returns after okay. a while okay. because I think that you can have these debates, ex- see the other person's values, yeah. but after a point, you're just continuing for the sake of confrontation, yeah. Yeah. which I think is something Actually, yeah. that I kind of spend a little bit too much time on. Now, now that I think back to first uni, I think a lot of that was done. Like a lot of people started to engage in political um, ideologies, beliefs, sort of philosophies um, for the first time and I started mm. to do a lot of debate. So I think it's very useful at the start to initially talk to those people, especially yeah. differing opinions. But, yeah, I do agree. I think like if you find that after a particular point you're really set on something, that you should just work to advance that cause in a constructive manner rather than debating against people that, it's you're not going to get really anywhere with yeah but again i would say university is cool because it's a melting pot of different ideas mm. well what do you think have been kind of your biggest learnings from university also coming to the end of your degree oh biggest learnings um biggest learnings well well i think oh that's difficult i think i've had a lot of great experiences like i would frame university's experiences and through all of those i got a lot of learnings and just sort of character development. Mm. If I was to frame it through experiences, it would definitely be things like going to India, that trip, do an exchange, um, certain things like societies, like Enactus, case comps, mm. opportunities for internships. But I think like, I think learning is that like university puts you in a position where if you're in sort of open, not open-minded, but just an open person that you become a lot more willing to engage in new opportunities. Mm. So I think people like university tells you just like grab all of those opportunities and have a go i, I feel like I you've done that's like a, a really like, central uh, you've thing. done a lot of opportunities at uni like i remember when i first met you and you went to go to the buddhist society in between the thing like you, you seem to have done a lot you're doing the touch footy thing like you kind yeah. of really kind of yeah university I, I think ball, i so tried a lot of different things um like a lot of international things like the international experiences of which there are many associated yeah. with university or the best I, I think like if i had to frame it for a regret thing I wish I did more difficult, maybe uh, team sort of projects, society things from an early age at uni. I think I was immensely excited about the prospects of university, meeting different people, being part of sort of different groups, just like a whole bunch of different um, people with different backgrounds and whatnot that I lost, like I sort of stopped working as hard, Mm. sort of stopped challenging myself as much, um, which I like, I actually do like regret, I would say, because I think I went too hard with the sort of socialization just having fun Mm. and like there's sort of benefits to that but if i was to do it again i think i would i I would study harder yeah i'll join certain groups and like really work hard in those and have like really deep experiences because i just think i've found lately that all the best things have come from working extremely hard towards like a goal but do you think that if you hadn't had those kind of more party experiences early on in uni you would have still kind of felt the need to work hard or do you think that there's no way to tell that? Um, yeah, I think it would have been fine because like I already had like a lot of social experiences and uni university just exacerbated that a lot mm. more. So I think it was like an overreaction on my part. Yeah. And so like I think now like I'm working very hard because I'm trying to mitigate certain problems to do with like marks, to do with like catching up on like career stuff yeah. as well. So I think... Yeah, it definitely. You said that humbly, like you've done a lot of like career stuff in the last two years. Well, yeah, I think it gives me a bit of a chip in the shoulder, mm. and that's something that will now last for me, I think, forever. Because mm. it's like I feel like I was behind the eight ball. I felt like I I felt like a bit confused for a while, especially mm. like coming after exchange. And now I'm not going for that. Mm. But um, I think it, if I had planned and organized better and worked harder yeah. in certain aspects, I think that could have been more beneficial. Mm. But again, like. I, in like, maybe in five or ten years, I won't see it as regret because everything will have worked out just fine. It will work out. And yeah. I think I see those all those experiences. Like I'm not sure if you see this now, but I just think they very much made you who you are in terms of like um, having like I, I think it's easier to say that in hindsight, but like it's all about the process of discovering what you wanted to do. 
and you realize things you didn't want to do through experience. You realize Partly, the kind but- of life you didn't want to live. Like, like you're interested in banking now, right? Start of uni, that's probably something you weren't even considering. Mm. And yeah. it took you those other experiences to then kind of get to it. But I know you could have I, I accelerated agree. that process. Yeah, I just would have accelerated the process. Yeah. And I think, actually, no, this is a learning. If you have an inkling or like you just have a tiny thought that you might want to do something, always just try it no matter yeah. what. Because I had this inkling that I wanted to work in finance, like investment banking. And that inkling came very, very early in like mm-hmm. start of second year, maybe even first year. I just put it off to certain stereotypes, certain things I've heard, things like, oh, I can't do that now. And I thought I had to like, okay, I'll try this, this, maybe then later I'll try it. I wish I just tried it first. Yeah, It would have saved time. So that's something that I'm learning now. It's like, if you like a small inkling in your brain about something might actually mean a lot. Yeah. And I think we're also seeing a lot of our friends who have done full degrees alongside us and now changing and doing something else. We've had a lot of friends starting to do other degrees. That's like really practical advice that if you're starting university, the great the degree you're in doesn't have to be what you do for the rest of your life. And you have if you have an inkling in some area, don't just think about it. I think we can all get caught in analysis paralysis. A lot of things you can't think your way out of. A lot of them you just have to experience it. Go talk to someone in that industry and actually find out if like test your hypothesis. Find out what it's actually like, mm. or find out if you'd like that kind of thing. Hundred percent. That's um, a good way to see it. Testing your own hypothesis about something. Yeah, and I think early on in uni, like a lot of people can get caught away with the partying and stuff like that, but ultimately uni is this experience and it doesn't as tian likes to put it it doesn't have to be a technical skill training you to be a banker training you to be an engineer right Mm. it's this experience of kind of becoming on what you want to be and i feel like you have had that holistic experience yeah that's true Um, i I think if i talk to a lot more people that were fully set on university and what they wanted to do from day one mm. um i think i would find a lot of people that somewhat regret not trying other things yeah and that get a bit um worried and have like sort of mini midlife crises from yeah. early age like i mean i have talked to people like that and so that's something that i like i'm confident that i won't go through mm. now because i've got like sort of more self-knowledge so yeah maybe mm. it's worked out better than i thought yeah i think just to summarize that kind of like university chat is experience widely kind of test your hypotheses mm. and if you have an inkling towards something actually just try it out because yeah. you don't want to regret it later um i think and i just think that university is something that you can really be yourself in right and you can really go out and do things you want to do like what we met at a touch footy thing and there's just so many societies and so many places where you can just be your authentic self and i think people shouldn't be scared to do that mm. and, and i also think that in first and second year, there is some merit in like actually not doing too much outside work if you can afford to and enjoying time on campus. I think that's kind of something I kind of slightly regret is not spending too much time on campus. Those late night Fisher sessions and stuff like that. Like I feel like that's an experience I kind of missed out on. 100%. Um, but it is very different going to university in Australia and working and, you know, yeah, it's a different experience to the US and um, England. Yeah, yeah, very different. So... Do you want to ask me a question? Yeah, yeah, or? yeah. No, I, I'm just gonna open this next beer. But I'm dude, going so need... much slower. Yeah. <laughs> you, you normally inhale your beers. I'm pacing. Um, so, yeah, so something that I like am very kind of, I think you do very well, and it's something I struggle with, is that you be, like you're a very hard worker, and you have become especially so in the last two years. But something you do is, I think you live a very holistic life. Like you always like kind of, you spend time with your girlfriend, you go play tennis, you do all these kinds of things. How do you, in your head, how do you manage that kind of having fun presence aspects with your kind of ambition? Well, to answer that, there's, there's no management. But to mm-hmm. preface that, I'd say, I think you're a person that focuses much more on being a holistic person rather than me, which is interesting that you I said focus that. Because I need to do it. Like I, I need to, like in my head, I need to do it more. And okay. I, like, I think you've yeah. got that balance. So you probably don't need um, to focus on it. Yeah, it's nothing. I, I have no management or no sort of um, structure in my head of how to balance things. Mm. Like, obviously, I've got like an internal calendar in my head and I know like I'm very good at internalizing um, dates and what I need to do. Mm. So like, obviously, I write things down, but I know that like, okay, I've got these deadlines. I want to yeah. do this. I think me and you have that similar. Like, I don't keep a calendar at all. Like, yeah. The important I, things I kind of yeah. know. I do keep a calendar, but I've, I think I've got a good vision in my head of like what I should be doing when mm. I should be doing it. Um, do you ever feel guilty, let's say, when you're out doing something fun that you should you should be working? No, no. Yeah. Only if I haven't done that thing or I haven't had a good balance in a week. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm happy with my balance at the moment. It's like working hard at work, time with like relationship, um, a lot of time with friends, like 
sporting activities like playing a lot of tennis, going to the gym, mm. like playing poker, Mandarin class, just doing a bunch of different things. And I guess like I'm just in this position where I had like two and a half months holiday. So I'm just mm. doing all that stuff. But um, yeah, I think it comes naturally. But I think it's I think it's more so the byproduct of living a uni life. Do you ever feel like you're out of balance? Um, good question. I don't think I've felt that for a while. I think the only times I feel that is when I'm not working hard enough. So I had some time off from work after university. It was like three weeks to a month. Yeah. And yeah, I felt out of balance. Like if I go, I think more than a week without like working like um, hard on some sort of project, I feel out of balance. I think that's just who I am. And I think you've just got to accept that. Um, but not the other way around. Like I've never felt like I'm working really too hard. Oh, really? Because I'm my happiest when I work really hard, mm. I think. Why do you think that is? Like, do you think that, do you think there's any like ego element in there or do you oh, think I'm it's just- sure there is. I think ego is present in everything people do. Like really, like a lot of, for me, like I'm a competitive person. Um, I like to work towards projects. Do you like working hard in comparison to others or working hard for yourself? Yeah, both, both. Yeah, I love, I love to be competitive and that sort of stuff. Mm. Like I think I find a lot of, like when I'm just doing projects, whether it's work, university, other stuff, I get a lot of meaning from that. I like to- yeah, I like to be competitive, all that sort of stuff. So, so if you're in a hypothetical world where you have to take a six-month holiday and, like, it was just kind of just chilling out, you know, living at home, but six months off work, six months off all that kind of stuff, yeah. do you think you'd still have meaning? Yeah, 100%. Like, I would I would just read heaps. Mm. I would read heaps because I love to read. <laughs> but when you read, is it working towards some kind of goal or is no, it not just at all. enjoyment? Like, I've got a lot of interests, like uh, politics, like... Um, geopolitics mm. i like reading biographies i'm obsessed with biographies mm. i could do that but it's more so but what's like what's okay what i've learned about myself recently is that i love to work hard in competitive things mm. and like if i'm doing something i enjoy working hard and being competitive that's like when i feel really good and something i've realized lately is that first year uni i sort of held back from the working hard as much just doing a bunch of like going out having fun you're, you're still working hard on the i was working hard but stuff. it's like I like it when I've got like one or two things that I'm going really hard in. Yeah. And I think that's me. And mm. like in year 12 in high school, I felt that completely. I was so like in alignment mm. of like I had like four or five different things I was working really hard to. And how, how, did you, how do you choose those things? Like do you ever feel like you're working hard towards the wrong thing? Some of them fell in place because – so for example, it was like ATAR. Mm. It was rugby. It was – um, then co-curricular stuff like cadets, Duke of mm. Edinburgh. And then I made a goal to read like 50 books in that yeah. year. So I had, I think there was one other thing. I had like five goals for that year, like maintain all of them. And um, I sat down at the beginning of the year, I made five goals and I just smashed it. What and that's now? the most in alignment I felt, like in terms of goals. Still chasing that HSC alignment. <laughs> What's that? I said, it sounds like you're still chasing that HSC yeah, alignment. Yeah, 100%. I love that. It's like, Right now, I've got like these sort of uni goals. I've got like very, very high-level uni goals because I'm trying to compensate because I love having those goals as well. Mm. And then I've got these work goals, which I shouldn't delve too much into. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> NDAs. <laughs> um, and then I've got sort of the co-curricular elements of things. But like, do you ever feel like this hard work is being directed in the wrong place? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening mm. sometimes feel like they're working hard, but they have this kind of analysis paralysis and what to actually work hard on yeah because yeah. there's always an opportunity cost of working really hard in 100%, a certain area. 100%. no i've thought a lot about that and i'm happy with what i'm working mm. on especially to do with work i see like the foundation it's building the skills i'm learning all that mm. stuff especially with university I have a wide variety of courses i love mm. but um yeah i i think i've in my life previously i've had too much analysis paralysis especially in, like as i've said those first two years of university constant thinking about stuff yeah i'm like I'm just like, fuck that. Just do stuff. Yeah. Just work really hard at it. And then you can tweak it along the way. Yeah. It seems like you've also had this shift in like not thinking about long-term goals so much. Like we used to always talk about long-term goals and like kind of the why of your life and what your mm. big 50-year vision is. But it seems like you've kind of focused more on like the short-term what you can control right now. Yeah. I don't know what's on yeah, that. Yeah. No, I think I've still got like all those long-term aspects, but I'm just like, they're a bit more futile than we think. Like mm. you can have them, but they're just constantly changing. Mm. So I'm just viewing life in a much more practical way. Yeah. But that as well as like, I know like a lot of what my interests are. Yeah. They're pretty solid right now. Yeah. That's good. And I, th I also think that like, I know you keep on saying you have these regrets about it, but I think you needed that experience to kind of find out what your interests are. Yeah. That's probably one way of putting it. Um, that's probably a good way of putting it. And, and I think to what Adam says is, 
I kind of believe in that more so just kind of being present in what you're doing now and not thinking too mm. much in the future because so much stuff is luck. So much stuff is kind of information asymmetry. And I have this metaphor I like to use, which is a sandwich. So it's like the top down, which is like having these kind of end goals where kind of a direction you want in life to kind of cure your existential angst and kind of give yourself some purpose, but also having this bottom up approach of like, okay, I'm going to, I'm, these are my things in my immediate future. These are things I'm going to be present with and work hard on and I'm not going to get too caught up in what the meaning of all this is. Because I, I think at the end of the day, like we create our own meanings and these things don't have inherent meaning, but they're important to us and we can't get caught up in analysing their, you know, their meaning towards um, mm. the whole earth or like the whole of life kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think people go through times with that, that shift. So they'll go through thinking a lot and then they'll go through just being super present practical mm. aligned and a feeling of alignment with what they're doing mm. yeah it feels good but i think at times we always need that sort of analysis yeah and like to me it's almost like we kind of need to delude ourselves with these activities and i know delude is kind of a harsh word what do you mean delude ourselves into not thinking about these these bigger things and in terms of like i, I think this all comes down from a very nihilistic view that the world has no meaning. We create our own meaning. I'm not religious. Neither You're not that religious either, right? So we both believe that we create our own meaning through our actions, Somewhat. right? And Somewhat. I think that if we're being kind of present in our actions and what we're doing on right now, maybe we're kind of motivated by stress, maybe we're motivated by someone else, but we're, mo- we're motivated by deadlines, you know, working hard, mm. that that kind of kind of mitigates this, this thinking about the future and it kind of deludes us into thinking, okay, this is our meaning right now. Mm-hmm. Do you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd frame it like that. I'd say that there's meaning out there and we go out and seek it and find it. Like I don't really view everything as like the world has no meaning, everything's subjective. Mm. Like I think there are a lot of things that like are intrinsically meaningful. How, how do you – People, why relationships. You, yeah, like I, I'm, sure, I'm sure they're intrinsically meaningful, but we decide to make them meaningful to us. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I mean. I think, yeah, there's, yeah, there's definitely a part of deciding and – some things get decided by us, but yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you. Mm. So I think often when we talk about beliefs or yeah, when we talk about beliefs, if I was to ask you the question, like what's one belief you would spread to people, it'd be like a very self-development thing about like someone's mental state that you'd want to spread. Yeah. I want to shift that. What's one um, political issue or like sort of social issue or like political belief that you would want to spread spread to as many people as you could right now like what's something that's very much engaging you in world politics or australian politics and it can also be a social issue so it can be on the verge of politics yeah and I, th- I think there's like three but they're all kind of interconnected just the three things that i'm kind of really interested in right now is one the environment and the kind of potential of climate change and how we need to shift our political conversations and our economic incentives for better kind of um, emission management and climate change the second is rising inequality and I think this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, there's this book, Good Economics for Hard Times, highly recommended. It's digestible. You don't need an economics background. Um, it talks a lot about this, that it, especially in America, inequality is rising so much. We have these kind of tech giants that are growing. We have these billionaires that are growing. But we have this kind of um, group of the bottom 60% or whatever you want to call it that that they're not, they're not improving that much. And I think that America is going to be faced with a big issue in the future. And I think, honestly, a lot of the protests we've seen recently are, although they're a symptom of the BLM movement and all those kinds of things, they're also a symptom of people angry about the rising inequality. And I think as with with um, AI accelerating, Andrew Yang talks a lot about this with kind of a lot of truck drivers being put out of work, a lot of low-skilled jobs being put out of work in the future because of increasing automation. I'm quite worried about how this is all going to play out. Yeah. So um, environment, uh, rising inequality. And the third thing that I want to, I'm quite passionate about right now is that I think we're going to be seeing a new kind of era of guarded globalization where globalization has gone so far with free trade is, I think, going to diminish a little bit with the rising tensions we've seen. I think COVID has also exacerbated made, it. Yeah, exacerbated it and made politicians consider that, okay, we still need to domestically produce stuff this whole concept of comparative advantage yes it works but there is some kind of things we need to produce ourselves for both security and also political leverage and i want to see that in this kind of somehow a big belief i have is that although we're going to probably move towards more guarded guarded globalization there's been an increase in right-wing governments around the world 
I don't want that to make people more prejudiced against each other. And I don't want us to see kind of these kind of rising tensions and what I think as like backwards beliefs about other races in other countries. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I, I, and I think that kind of the environmental one has been something I'm very passionate about recently. Um, Tian has a great article on this that we'll kind of put in the comments, but Mm. about moving towards nuclear and how we can kind of transcend some of these old school beliefs about environment because it's something we need to do now it's like i think a lot of issues where they kind of take time to come into fruition where old school mentalities of politicians are kind of eventually um taken over but i think this is something that needs to be done now Mm. um so that in 2100 our grandkids aren't putting in a world where it's gotten 2.5 degrees hotter or whatever else they're predicting yeah Something to note about the renewable energy space, there was some really exciting news just the other day is that there's this um, massive solar energy uh, project in the Northern Territory and it's linking uh, Singapore with um, Australia and it's this uh, sun cable project. I think it's our biggest renewable energy project Mm. and we're going to be supplying a third of um, Singapore's energy now Mm. just from solar panels in us and it was a a huge advancement towards the cause. Yeah, I, I think it's inevitable that we'll see a lot more investment in that stuff, mm. especially in a country as like sunny and vast as Australia. Yeah. Something interesting about a non-renewable space that I was talking to actually Tian about just a couple of days ago. I wonder, should Australia, if we have a global coordinated um, action against climate change, should Australia overproduce renewables and over sort of compensate for that well, if we can produce at a cheaper cost and if we have easier access to it and if there can be economic efficiencies gained globally from that yeah i think that would take a huge investment and i think that's something we need to consider but i think what's holding us back is opinions of politicians and yeah. also our reliance on coal we yeah. have this historical reliance on our coal it is part of our well, past but i don't think it can be part of our so, future sorry it this goes into the coal question so mm. i 100 percent believe about the opinions politicians mm. but if australia is able to I'm, I'm not sure how much this actually plays out able to access non-renewables at a much cheaper rate should we be using that more shipping that to more oh, countries? non-renewables non-renewables okay. should oh, we be using that more and then shipping that to other countries more exporting that more while other countries use renewables more and then globally you'd potentially see efficiency gains because from what I've read is that our production of coal, um, I think it's particularly coal. Oh, so but you're saying it's world. environmentally more efficient to produce? So I'm, I'm talking about if in a transition, you're inevitably going to have some part of the world using coal. Yeah. Um, should Australia be overcompensating? Kind of that guinea pig where we provide the coal and they kind of focus exactly. on Exactly. Okay. If you can have a globally coordinated. Yeah, I think it's actually, I think it's interesting. Um, but I also, what I've been reading on recently is that developing countries are ones that are most impacted by climate change. And that's Mm. also something we need to consider. Like, yes, this is an issue in all nations, but in developing countries, places like India and stuff, Mm. when temperatures start getting hotter, um, people lose their efficiency at work with smog, people die, a ridiculous number of people die every year. I think it's 500,000 from kind of preventable smog in India and things like that. So I think something... Well, that would make a case that it's better if they use more renewables and, yeah, and yeah. less. And so the developed countries potentially use more non-renewables. But I think like kind of a counter argument to what you're saying is that Australia is actually very well positioned for solar and wind, mm-hmm. especially solar. Mm-hmm. We have all of this desert, which we yeah. could be using for potential solar. But yeah, I think yeah. there is a no, case. I, I agree. With but what you're I, I think I agree with the premise of a coordinated global effort. I think that's what the 2015 um, Paris Accord was trying to do. Um, it didn't get there. A lot of countries are pulling out. And I just think that if countries like America and Australia can't even comply with their emission targets, how can we expect countries like India? How can we Australia's expect China? No, it's not at the moment. Are we not? No. I'm very sure that we're, 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 we're under. Paris. We're, we're under like what we're Oh, we've used the credits, right? So we've carried over credits and that's allowed us. I was like, under the impression we're under, but we can double we'll check, that. check that. But America isn't. Um, and if, let's say, some of these kind of Western superpowers that are a lot richer than other, other mm. countries are not doing it, how can we expect kind of other countries to be doing it? Yeah. And yeah. Um, to be able to afford to do those things. So, yeah, I think this is something that obviously it's been talked about a lot. There's been protests. But I think that ultimately it's going to take a coordinated global effort. It's going to take um, politicians shifting their opinions, yeah. kind of paying more attention to some of the facts around these issues. And also taking more of a long-term 
um, approach and not considering what's going to get them elected next yeah, term. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I think yeah, it all starts from the top, especially even in a democratic nation, you need politicians. Yeah, that genuinely believe climate change is a threat. I, I just think I want to empath, 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 emphasize, emphasize. That's what I'm trying to say. I want to emphasize <laughs> that a lot of these issues we've seen in the past, but and there gets a tipping point where kind of the young generation that believes in these issues get older, getting power, and then they kind of tip across the line, right? But I think with this particular issue, we can't afford can't wait. to wait that time. And yeah. I think that's something that I want to kind of like underline and bold. Yeah, yeah, um, 100%. It's important. I'm keen to research more about it, Yeah, especially energy industry. And it's that cool that stuff. people like Chamath are putting out billions to kind of Mm. I think that's really cool. There's this guy called Chamath, which me and Adam follow. He's got a very difficult last name. It's like Pal Hapapatia, if yeah. you're interested. He he runs a well, he used to run a company called Social Capital. We're like really obsessed with him at the moment. Yeah, he's got he's the chairman of Virgin Galactic. Um and he's just kind of put up a couple of billion to kind of crowdsource a climate change solution or at least a kind of a an investment playbook in terms of finding good companies. Yeah that are doing stuff for climate change. Mm. I, I think we'll, we'll finish off on this question that I have for you, but this interest in poker, how do you see poker as kind of like a game of life? <laughs> and, and I'd like to emphasize that you're really fitting the whole finance um, stereotype, finance, <sighs> investment banking, playing God, poker. I don't think there's actually a stereotype <laughs> there. I just think there's a correlation between people that have that interest in finance and poker like i just think they're sort of similar skills mm. but i don't know if it's like a huge stereotype but yeah i just got interested in it during coronavirus playing with friends um played in a tournament last week it's just a really fun game and i think it includes so many aspects of human behavior but then that's coupled with game theory and mathematics so it's like this almost incredibly holistic game where you're having to analyze other people, you're almost having to analyze yourself. Um, you've got to keep your behavior often calm. You've got to show sort of different emotions um, and you've got to, and there's this mathematical element to it. Mm. And I think it's, yeah, I just find it an incredibly fun game. And I just think it's a bit of a rabbit hole. Like the more there's an incredible amount that you can learn about it, um, but it's incredibly simple to play. And yeah, I just keep on finding more and more cool people that play poker. Like this Chamath guy is like almost a semi-professional poker think, player and it's just such, oh, such a fun game. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems like a lot of the things you said you're interested before, competition, strategy, you know, it seems like they're tied together in poker. I but think I, I also think there's a correlation in terms of all these businessy kind of guys are interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah, but the thing is like poker, like, I mean, on the one hand, it has everything to do with money, but on the other hand, it has nothing to do with money. Mm. Like, I think people play it purely for fun, but obviously there has to be some sort of monetary reward to no, really I, enhance that competition. Yeah, but I'm talking yeah. through this whole kind of game theory, you know, finding... Oh, the 100%. Like, there's a lot of uh, relations with poker about investing, mm. about how, like, sort of your own behavioral elements, the market's behavior, yeah. but also thinking about game theory, I think is important. The mathematical side is very similar, but I think, like, poker when you play it just comes out in other sort of areas in yeah. life interesting all right i think we've both asked each other two questions we'll wrap this up this has been a bit of fun having a few beers discussing yeah. some things we want to interview um each other about um but yeah this was episode 27 was it yeah and um we'll be back soon in the actual podcast lab hopefully getting heaps of guests on meeting new people we've got a few lined yeah. up um i think there'll be some interesting episodes to come and just thanks everyone again for listening and helping us reach, um, take away a month of your time. <laughs> Probably 28 days of that was us clicking out in videos. But... I don't know where you're getting a month from. <laughs> 803 hours on YouTube. Divide that by 24. 